Thank you for listening to the podcast of Antioch Church, a Christian community in Bend, Oregon, being formed by the story of a God who is making all things new, including us. You can learn more at antiochchurch.org. Thanks for listening. Hello, Antioch family. My name is Sean. I'm one of the pastors on our team. And while I am happy to spend some time together with you digitally today, I wish that it was in person. How good was it to be together last weekend for Easter? That was such a fun day from the beautiful location, the wonderful weather, awesome service, the super fun egg hunts. It was an absolute blast. I loved getting to meet so many of you in person, and I look forward to when we are together in person again soon. And one small message for the haters that booed me and said they were cheering for Gonzaga. I want you to know that I forgive you. And sick and bears, my heart goes out sincerely to all the Gonzaga fans out there. It was a really great season. Today, we are in the second Sunday of Easter, which may sound strange to some of you. Second Sunday of Easter? Isn't Easter only one day? Well, in the church calendar, we actually get the season of Easter, what is sometimes referred to as Eastertide. This season lasts between Easter and Pentecost with seven Sundays or 49 days in between these two pivotal celebrations in the church calendar. The resurrection that comes at Easter isn't something that can only be contained to one day. It needs to continue to be celebrated, which is why we have seven Sundays in this Easter season. Others of you may have celebrated this day as Bright Sunday, a day that commemorates the joy, the happiness, and laughter that we feel after the resurrection of Jesus. Throughout church history, Bright Sunday was even celebrated as a day to play practical jokes on one another in church, which, according to Augustine or Augustine, was to commemorate that God played a practical joke on the devil by raising Jesus from the dead. So all that to say, you have one more opportunity at an April Fool's type joke if you missed your chance 10 days ago. Today, we will continue on in the Gospel of John, which is where we were for our Gospel text on Easter when Pete was preaching. A couple things to note about the Gospel of John. First, this was probably the last Gospel account to be written. That'll be important later. And it really has one of my favorite authorship stories, as Pete touched on last week, if you joined us for Easter. John describes himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved, or the beloved disciple, which is really convenient, right? It just so happens that in John's gospel, Jesus refers to John as the beloved disciple, uh, his favorite. This doesn't happen in any other gospel account. I mean, shoot your shot, John. That is awesome. I love it. John's gospel tends to be more theologically rich than the other accounts. He loves to craft themes and big ideas that repeat throughout the account. Stories of Jesus are weaved with the purpose of convincing the listener that Jesus was divine in his origins, his powers, and his goals. John doesn't start his gospel with the Christmas story. He goes back to the beginning with a cosmic emphasis. Um, you've heard this before. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John has this kind of cosmic storytelling flair. We'll see in a few minutes why this is important, as uh, our text today takes place near the very end of this gospel account. Our text is immediately following our Easter text. So Jesus was crucified and buried in the empty tomb was discovered by Mary, which cemented women as the last at the cross and the first at the tomb. 
And now we have Jesus making a few more appearance stories to close out chapter 20 in the Gospel of John. The first scene involves Jesus appearing to his disciples. And before we jump into the text, a big shout out to the Bale family for reading scripture all the way from England. Our text today goes like this. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands inside. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. So we are still on the first day of the week. So Sunday evening, the same day we celebrate as Easter. And the disciples are huddled together. They're in hiding behind locked doors. It's probably a more expansive group than the 11 remaining disciples, most likely including a larger group of the followers of Jesus. They are scared and afraid of the repercussions of being associated with Jesus. Maybe each of them had dreamed about how this all would go, might have been different, but none of them expected this journey to seemingly end with Jesus dying on a cross just a few days prior. The tomb for them was not the symbol of hope and resurrection that we feel today, but it was a symbol of fear and failure, and that's why they're in hiding. And who says the Bible isn't relatable? The disciples were basically in lockdown. They were in quarantine already. We've been there, right? Locked inside together and nowhere to go. But as they are huddled together, unsure about how they might be able to quietly leave the city and evade the authorities, Jesus just shows up out of nowhere. We've talked about tropes before, particularly in movies, but one of the more familiar tropes along these lines happens in Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Indiana Jones, he's in a fight with a bad guy on a tank, and they're quickly approaching a cliff's edge as his father, played by Sean Connery, and his other friends, they're, they're watching on. They see the tank go over the cliff with Indiana Jones on it, and they huddle at the edge of the cliff. They are sad. They're confused. They're, they're shocked. And then a few moments later, Indiana Jones casually walks up from behind and makes the most nonchalant appearance ever. You can look at this picture. And, and that is how I imagine this scene. The disciples are still in shock from the weekend's events. They can't believe that Jesus has died. They are distraught. They're maybe confused because they've heard about a few people claiming to have seen Jesus. And then he just shows up really casually coming through a locked door, knowing that this would probably scare them because I'm sure it would freak me out. Jesus tells them that he comes in peace. He makes sure to calm their fears because they need to be calm because he is about to give them a big job. Jesus says to them, as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. Basically, I need you all to do what I have been doing, what I have just done. You have to continue to spread this message of peace and hope and love, which I'm sure caused even more fear in this big group and, and probably feelings of inadequacy. This would be like if you went to interview for a job as a barista at Starbucks and they told you that you were hired to run the whole company. 
You might say, hey, I, I'm not ready for that. I don't have those skills. You know, I just wanted to work 20 hours a week. This isn't going to end well for anyone. And this is where the importance of the Holy Spirit comes in. We see that the text says that Jesus breathed on them and he said, receive the Holy Spirit. In both Hebrew, the word is ruach, and Greek, pneuma, the word for spirit is the same word as breath. So Jesus is literally breathing the breath of God, the spirit of God onto them, which is a story we see time and again throughout scripture. When God created Adam, he breathed life into him. With Ezekiel and the dry bones, the Lord breathed new life into them because it is only through the work of the Holy Spirit that this ragtag group can accomplish this monumental task and fulfill the Great Commission. And we see here that deep connection between Easter and Pentecost we talked about earlier. Um, we typically think of Pentecost as, as the big Holy Spirit moment. But we see that Easter is not only about God's power to raise Jesus from the dead. It is also a story about the Holy Spirit's power to catalyze Jesus' followers to participate in the work of Christ. We see that the point of receiving the Holy Spirit is not to give the disciples new spiritual experiences, though to be sure they will have plenty, nor is it to set them apart as a special holier-than-thou club, though they are called to live a life full of devotion modeled on Jesus' life. The point is so that they can do and in and for the whole world what Jesus had been doing in Israel. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. A helpful way to think about this is as an epic symphony. The, the composer crafts it all, puts it together, arranges it, and so on, does all of that. But it's up to the musicians to implement it. The composer doesn't play all of the instruments. Jesus had accomplished the defeat of death. He's arranged that for the disciples and for us, but it is up to the disciples to spread that message to the world. And they can only do that with the help of God's breath, the Holy Spirit. The second appearance scene we see in this chapter is with our old buddy Thomas, and it goes like this. Now, Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands, and put my finger where the nails were, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now, I don't know why Thomas wasn't with the disciples when Jesus first showed up, but I am here today to defend Thomas. He has gotten a bad rap throughout history being called the famous moniker of Doubting Thomas, which is super unfair. First of all, when we talked about Mary, the mother of Jesus, leading up to Christmas, we talked about doubt as being an essential part of faith. So even trying to insult Thomas with that name 
doesn't fly with me. But even more than that, his response was no different than anyone else's. Let me explain. Thomas shows up sometime after Jesus has appeared and then disappeared again to have the rest of the crew tell him, hey, Jesus is back, which is a pretty wild thing to miss out on. Last week when we heard about Mary Magdalene, Simon Peter, and the disciple whom Jesus loved, remember, wink, wink, they all checked for physical evidence themselves. Even in the first appearance of disciples today, it's not until after Jesus showed them his hands and his side that they really believed it was him. So my guy Thomas is no different from anybody else and has been given unfair treatment and it stops here, okay? When we hear big news or crazy stories, we all tend to look for verification or validity. We, we love fact checkers. We want to check those claims, not because we are some type of doubting people that can never have belief, but because it's natural to do some investigatory work. Here is one example and some really exciting news I want to share. My wife, Julie, and I are thrilled that we are pregnant with our first child. We are incredibly pumped to be parents and cannot wait to welcome a little girl to our family in September. But even when Julia told me the news, I wanted to see the pregnancy test. It's not that I didn't believe her, but it was just such amazing news. I wanted to be sure. Or even when we saw the first ultrasound, that was a big step in moving toward the reality of this incredible excitement and blessing. Didn't mean I needed to be labeled Doubting Sean, and neither should Thomas. So I'm here to defend him. Because exactly one week later, again on the first day of the week, we see Jesus appear to the group of disciples a second time, and this time Thomas is around. Jesus calms them once again, tells them he comes in peace, and he turns to Thomas and he says, you know, put your finger here. Reach out your hand. Put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Now this phrase, Stop doubting, it does sound a little harsh to us, but it's probably not the best translation. You know, it's not don't have any questions or, or stop being difficult. It's more accurately translated as lacking full belief. Throughout this gospel, John talks about belief in relationship terms more so than anything else. So Jesus wants him to move from lacking an abiding bond to the risen Christ to having a joyful and life-transforming relationship with him. And one thing that's interesting to me, and we don't know whether the text intentionally or unintentionally omits this, is it never tells us that Thomas actually touched Jesus. Jesus gave him the offer, but he said he wanted to put his fingers where the nails were, put his hand into Jesus' side, but the text doesn't tell us if he actually does. And I think that's because the point is not that Thomas touched Jesus' wounds and, and came around to belief. The point is that the risen Jesus opened himself and his life to Thomas in a way that Thomas could receive him. In a way that Thomas could go from lacking full belief to a relationship with Jesus. And this is where we see Thomas declare Jesus as Lord and God because of it. So Thomas's declaration, it's a completion of John's gospel account and understanding of faith. I told you at the beginning, John's gospel starts in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Thomas becomes the first one to look at Jesus and address Him directly as God. 
John tells us who Jesus is as the word at the beginning takes us on a winding story where misunderstanding is an essential part of the pathway to faith. And Thomas's confession of Jesus as Lord and God is what wraps it all together. And this, this is where the story turns to us. We've seen Jesus appear to the disciples. We've seen him appear to Thomas. And the final appearance we see in this chapter is to you and me. The text says this. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is where John breaks the fourth wall, the house lights go up, and now the readers, the listeners, and ultimately us are the focus. You may have noticed I I skipped over where Jesus tells Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And that's because I want to teach you a fancy word called synecdoche. Maybe some of you have heard it before, but say it with me. Synecdoche. Synecdoche. See? It's a device used in literature where a part represents the whole. And Thomas is actually a synecdoche for the wider community. Remember, this gospel account was written later than the others. So John knows that he is writing to a community that is further removed from these events in Scripture. So Thomas functions as an example for a community struggling to understand Jesus' absence. A community that doesn't get to see and experience the tangible signs of the resurrection. He is letting them know that their faith, and ultimately our faith, is equally blessed. So this isn't a rebuke of Thomas saying he only believed because he saw Jesus, but an encouragement for subsequent generations like you and me who won't see Jesus in the physical evidence that we can still have a deep and profound faith. So Thomas isn't someone we need to look down on, but he illustrates a deeper and a broader question for you and I. And that question is, what do we do one week after Easter? How are we different? What do we believe and how do we act differently because of what happened a week ago or what we celebrated one week ago? And I think John leaves us some hints. As we walk through the text, I pointed out that these different appearances and encounters each happen on the first day of the week. And that's because the first day of the week is meant to symbolize a new beginning, a new creation. It harkens back to Genesis. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, and the new is here. And that's what you and I are. We are a new creation. Just as Christ has been raised from the dead, so are we. God breathed into Adam his own breath, the breath of life, and humankind became alive. And now in the new creation, the restoring life of God is breathed out through Jesus, making new people of the disciples and making new people of you and me. Because we are Easter people. We are different because of Easter, and that doesn't just mean one day. It means we live differently. It means we love differently. And ultimately, it means that death doesn't have the final say. And that's what John is saying is the purpose of his gospel account. Not that we would just learn about Jesus and recognize who he was, but that we would believe that Jesus is the Messiah, 
the Son of God, and that we would have life in His name. I mean, just look at how far we've traveled in this chapter alone. We've moved from death to life, from fear to joy, from absence to presence. From a cemetery and a tomb with no hope to huddled in fear behind locked doors to new life for the disciples, for Thomas, for us, and beyond. So you have to answer that question for yourself. It's one week after Easter, and it sure was one awesome Easter. Especially powerful and significant and momentous after the year that we've had collectively. But how will you be different? In his book, Surprised by Hope, N.T. Wright asked the question of how can we learn to live as wide-awake Easter people? And here's what he has to say. Easter ought to be a time to take things up. If Calvary means putting to death things in your life that need killing off, if you are to flourish as a Christian and as a truly human being, then Easter should mean planting, watering, and training up things in your life, personal and corporate, that ought to be blossoming filling the garden with color and perfume and in due course bearing fruit. Jesus' resurrection is the beginning of God's new project, not to snatch people away from earth to heaven, but to colonize earth with the life of heaven. So maybe for Lent, you decided to give something up. Maybe it was a food item, maybe it was smoking, maybe it was picking on your little brother. What if in this next season of Easter, you decided to take something up? something that's wholesome and fruitful and life-giving. You might only be able to do it for these next six or seven weeks, but it might also give you a taste of new possibilities and hopes. It might help you wake up to Easter in a whole new way. And as you wake up to Easter, you'll join in with the commission that Jesus gave the disciples that he also gives to you and me when he says, as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And it's a big and daunting task to understand that we are to continue on that mission. But it's also comforting to know that the very same spirit that raised Christ from the dead is inside you and me. That the more we listen to the spirit, walk in step with the spirit, and even get out of the way of the spirit, we live out that mission as God's Easter people and representatives to the world. And if we don't have full belief in everything or struggle with it sometimes, we can look to Thomas as a positive example because Thomas shows us deeper and more important truths about Jesus, that Jesus will do whatever it takes to come meet us as we need to be met. We just have to tell him our needs. So Antioch family, may we be an Easter people that daily celebrates the good news of Jesus and carry it with us in our lives and our love as we join in with God Jesus and the Holy Spirit in the reconciliation of all things.